Man, if you would, please turn to Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 12 to 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you that what we gather to do this morning And it means something, that we are not striving after the wind, that we're not striving after something elusive. But your word commands us to strive after the kingdom of heaven. And even as we strive after the kingdom of heaven on a daily basis, we are transformed gradually. And so the one day where we Step into the kingdom of heaven. So God, we pray and ask that you would use your word this morning and encourage us to continue to strive after your kingdom. Remind us of the wonderful promises of the gospel. Encourage us, strengthen us, and by your spirit even convict us of sin so that we might become more and more like Christ, who is the great treasure of the kingdom of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you capture those moments that you want to remember? How do you take with you the special events of your life that you always wish to have with you? This is the value of having a camera, isn't it? With cameras where we can take precious moments with us, we can sort of relive the moments of the past today. And that's a wonderful thing about taking pictures, is that we can take a look at a picture that we've taken weeks ago, months ago, even years ago, 
And by that one picture, we can sort of, in a way, relive the moment. We can sort of remember vividly that experience, the things leading up to that experience. We can remember the thoughts that we had. We cannot even recall the taste of something that we had in that particular moment that's captured in the picture. We see the value of pictures because we know that we can't trust our own memories because our memories over time become distorted and even fade with time. In a way, cameras and pictures point to our finiteness, the reminder to us that nothing lasts forever. Not moments, not ourselves, not experiences. And so we take pictures because we want to remember things. We want to remember our experiences. We want to remember how things looked, how we appear. We want to remember other people. And yet, these pictures are also sort of a tangible reminder to us that as wonderful as that moment was captured in the picture, it was just a moment. And moments, as we know, are just temporary. Every picture taken, I think, is sort of our desire for something permanent, something transcendent. It's been working through the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher, the great wise teacher, has been on this quest to discover what, what is man to do with a few days of his life, what should he give himself to? What is of substance? What is life's meaning, life's purpose? He gives himself to sort of the intellectual pursuit. Let's sort of tease this out. Let's think about what life is all about. And then he gives himself to actually living it out practically. And each time he comes up empty-handed. So the teacher then returns to his previous endeavor of applying himself to consider intellectually, the value of wisdom and madness and folly. And so we first, in this particular section in Ecclesiastes, we see the snapshot of wisdom considered. Again, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done before. So we consider intellectually the life of wisdom. Does it come up with anything? And the answer we saw before, no. And then last week, we saw how this wise teacher gave himself to sort of a, a hedonistic pursuit, the life of pleasure, pursuing whatever his heart desired, withholding nothing from what he wanted. And that also came up empty-handed. That all essentially was vanity, a striving after wind, chasing after something that you could never grasp. And so then he returns to what was done before. He goes back to sort of reconsidering the meaning of life, thinking about these things, even though already it's, he's determined it's kind of, sort of come up empty-handed. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. What more is there for another man to do, he asks. What can a king do? that follows another king. Only what's already been done before. One generation replaces another. If you remember way back in chapter 1, chapter 1 points us to the cyclical nature of reality. Time passes and it comes. There's seasons that come and go, generations after generation. 
And so he sort of goes back to thinking about this pattern of life that repeats itself over and over and over again. One king replaces another first, right? There was, in history, there was Darius and the great Persian Empire, but then came Alexander the Great and toppled his empire, replaced his empire, destroyed a lot of the things in Darius's empire. But then Alexander himself died. His kingdom was then divided. And then later on came the Romans, who then conquered and became the most powerful in the world. Generations come, generations go. Kings come, kings go. Nations come, nations go. Right? No one can take a snapshot of all these different empires and make it sort of this perpetual reality that continues to live on after generation after generation. Darius could not do that. Alexander could not do that. The Romans could not do that. And the teacher, right, who I am convinced is actually King Solomon, even King Solomon could not do that. He also ruled had a vast kingdom, one of the most, probably the most powerful kingdom of his time, probably one of the most powerful kingdoms in the history of the world, one of the most richest, richest kings in the entire world, and certainly the wisest king that ever lived. And even he, even he could not make his kingdom last forever. Even his kingdom could not escape the cyclical nature of reality. He died. Eventually, his kingdom was divided. Foreign rulers came in. His people was scattered or enslaved. The great temple that he built was destroyed. His kingdom came to nothing. As much as we might value pictures, right? this is the downside of pictures, and that is, as much as we might have enjoyed the moment that was captured in that picture, it will still forever be in the past. There's no way to relive that moment exactly as it was captured in the picture. And one reason is because it was in the past. Right? People change over time. We age. The age that we are now, the person that we are now, may not necessarily be the person that we were in this picture that we consider so precious. So he, he reconsiders wisdom and folly. But he says that there is more gain in wisdom than there is in folly. He says in 14, the wise person at least has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet... I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. So then in reconsidering wisdom, madness, and folly, he again comes to a similar conclusion that, well, at the end of the day, at least wisdom is better than living as a foolish person. Even though, and he knows this from experience, he gave himself to a life of pleasure, a life of folly, a life void of God, no relationship with God, you conclude, well, there's nothing better to do than to just make yourself happy. To just try to make as many memories as you can in your life that are worthy of capturing. What more is there to do? There is no meaning to life that you should just make your life as pleasant and as happy as you can. 
there is certainly some rationale to that. Right? There is nothing else to live for. You might as well spend your life living as happily as you could. But he considers that it is better to do so wisely than do so foolishly. The life of wisdom is much better than the life of folly. Now, this wisdom that he speaks of is not grounded in God. I don't think he's talking about a, a, a Christian kind of wisdom. I don't think he's talking about a wisdom that comes from knowing the Lord. I think he's just talking about a secular kind of wisdom, that it is better to live in wisdom than in foolishness, even if you are not a follower of God. The Oxford Dictionary defines wisdom as the soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. So taking experience, taking knowledge, and trying, and also good judgment, and then, based on those things, making sound, rash, rational, good decisions. Folly, on the other hand, is defined as lacking good sense. Someone who doesn't make reasonable decisions. Now, when we consider the definition of wisdom and folly according to the Bible, they're actually not all that different. But there is one big difference between the Bible's definition of wisdom and folly and that of the world's definition of folly and wisdom. In the Bible, grounds wisdom and folly on relationship, namely relationship with God. Whether you're a Christian or not, right? everybody understands the value of wisdom. <clears throat> Nobody wants to be characterized as a foolish person. Nobody wants to make foolish decisions. Right? If you ask everybody in the world, would you rather be wise or a fool, I think most people would say wise. Right? Even if somebody would say, I would rather be a fool, we consider that a foolish choice. Nobody wants to be characterized as a foolish person because everybody understands the value of wisdom. Everybody knows that there are great benefits to being a wise person, to be a person given over to folly. And in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs grounds wisdom on a relationship with God. And it talks about the wonderful and many benefits of the life of wisdom. And I don't think that many of those benefits are exclusive, per se, to the person who has a relationship with God. I think many of those benefits can also translate to the person who is secular, the person who does not have a relationship with God. Many of those benefits, according to the book of Proverbs, are the following. Wisdom, now this is not promises, right? The Proverbs are not promises, saying that if this happens or if you do this, that this is guaranteed to happen. But they speak generally. That if this happens or if you do this or if you are this way, then generally speaking, it will lend itself to this or you will be this or this will happen. But there are exceptions. But many of the benefits of living a wise kind of life is that they give you or add years to your life. They keep you from stumbling. They can provide a hedge of protection around your life, protecting you from the crooked men and women of the world. They prevent you from making rash oaths. It helps to establish good relationships with your parents and family members and friends. The life of wisdom can even lead to material prosperity. The life of wisdom 
tends to bless others. It can deliver from trouble. It wins the favor of men. And wisdom, the life of wisdom grows in knowledge and discernment. The life of folly, on the other hand, can lead to a shortening of one's life. It can take away the years of one's life. It can lead to a loss of honor and reputation. Giving yourself the life of folly can lead to poverty, making rash oaths, being enslaved to many lenders. It leaves you wide open to crooked men and women of the world. The foolish person has the proclivity to greed and always wanting more, has the propensity to, towards trouble. It can lead to the breaking of friendships and familial relationships. It can lead to despise and scorn. It can tear down through rash words. It can lead to being disliked by many people. And the life of folly can lead to recklessness and carelessness. To some degree, every single person, whether you're a Christian or not, recognizes the advantages and disadvantages of living a life of wisdom or living a life of folly. And wisdom has a sort of flavor to one's life, a sweetness to living that we can taste ourselves and others can also taste as well. And yet giving yourself to a life of wisdom, even a, wis a wisdom that is apart from God, even if you should see many of these benefits by the grace of God, if God should be that gracious to you, if you should see this sort of prosperity horizontally in your life by giving yourself that kind, to give living a life of wisdom, the teacher comes to the conclusion that at the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything. That instead, it leaves a sort of a distaste for life. He says, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So he considered it, considers it as a vanity, striving after wind, even though the life of wisdom is much more profitable than life of folly, at the end of the day, it amounts to nothing. Because at the end of the day, the wise dies just like the fool. So he says he hates life. And I don't think he means sort of a reprehension towards life. Later on, as we continue through the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about the goodness of life. But I think he's speaking about a sort of a distaste for life, that even though wisdom, secular wisdom, can have a sort of a sweetness or add a sweetness to life, at the end of the day, it does leave a sort of a bittersweet taste. At the end of the day, for all it's worth, the life of wisdom cannot escape the reality of death. Like the camera that we use to capture moments in time, that kind of wisdom, wisdom that is apart from God, is only profitable for this life and this life only. It does nothing for a person when it comes to permanence. 
one of the things that the teacher is getting at, especially when we consider what came before and is giving his life to a pursuit of pleasure, is that memories are too short to make human endeavors worthwhile. Even if something should be significant today, even great accomplishments done today, at the end of the day, are they really all that worthwhile if they're not really remembered? If that ultimately is replaced, somebody outdoes it, and ultimately forgotten. Cameras give us the ability to capture moments, but those moments, as wonderful as they might have been, will always remain imprisoned in the past. And the thing about pictures is that pictures can always become lost. Phones can break. Hard drives that you might store those pictures in can become broken. Computers can become broken or can be broken. Despite its value, wisdom cannot do anything to solve the problem of death and the problem of forgetfulness. And so hence, even though, even though wisdom, there is profit in living a life of wisdom, but we see that wisdom is a sort of a double-edged sword. Yes, wisdom can lead to a better life, but those who are truly wise, if you really desire to be wise, you must also understand and also accept the fact that life is finite. That nothing in this world is permanent. The scriptures even teach a relationship between understanding one's finiteness and growing in wisdom. This is what Moses was talking about when he wrote in Psalm 90 verse 12, and as a prayer to God, he says, So God, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. <clears throat> There's a wisdom that comes from understanding that one's life is limited. When you know that you do not or cannot live forever. <clears throat> And when one understands that, they are much less prone to chasing after illusions. There's a story, <clears throat> I think it's probably even an ancient story, but it's a story about a stonecutter who became envious of a merchant. And because a merchant had a bunch of wonderful things, and he was surrounded by a lot of people because this merchant had a lot of wonderful things, and so he became, the stonecutter became envious of the merchant. He said, oh, I wish I could become the merchant. And he does. He becomes the merchant. And so he becomes the, 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 the magnet that attracts all these people because he has all this wonderful stuff. But then later on, he, the merchant then sees a high official lifted up by servants on a, on a chair, this comfortable chair. And everybody who sees the person, this high official, they're required to bow down to him. So he becomes envious of the high official. He says, oh, I wish I could become the high official. So he becomes the high official. Everybody bows down to him. And then one day, under the scorching hot sun, he looks at the sun. It's like, well, the sun is powerful, but because the sun doesn't have to bow down to me. It doesn't. I wish I could become the sun. So he becomes the sun. And then his, his, his brilliant light and heat is bearing down upon the earth and it becomes the object of scorn of farmers and laborers who lose all their crops because of the scorching heat. But then a cloud gets in between the sun and the earth. 
He says, wow, that cloud is powerful. I wish I would become the cloud. So he becomes the cloud that bears rain upon the earth, becomes the object of scorn and hate by the world because it destroys the, co- the, the crops of farmers and laborers. But then he's moved aside. He said, what could be more powerful than the cloud? And he realizes it's the wind. Oh, I wish I could become the wind. So he becomes the wind. So he brings his, his strong winds upon the earth, uprooting uh, trees, lifting shingles off of roofs. But then there's this great, tall stone. And no matter how much the wind bears upon the stone, he cannot move the stone. He says, wow, how powerful is the stone? I wish I could become the stone. So he becomes the stone. Great, big, tall, powerful. But then he begins to hear a sound. It's the sound of a hammer pounding at a chisel against a rock. He feels himself gradually transformed and changed. He says, what is that? What could be more powerful than a stone? So he looks down, he sees the figure of a stone cutter. Wisdom, the value of wisdom is that it helps us to see reality. It helps us to see things for the way they are. And it keeps us from chasing after illusions one high after another, one thing after another, and seeking joy and satisfaction and contentment and pleasure, the things of the world, and always have to sort of up the ante and go further and go further and go further. Wisdom keeps us from chasing, keeps us from chasing after illusions, right? that the American dream will satisfy, that wealth will be fulfilling, that status will be satisfying, that changing how you look or changing your identity will solve all the problems of your life. That the great problems of dissatisfaction and contentment and discontentment, the lack of permanent peace, the lack of ultimate fulfillment, that, this, that, that societal disunity can be resolved with temporary solutions. The wise do not chase after illusions. When the wise consider these things and accept them, it can lead them not only to apprehending what life, that life is finite and trying to make the most of their life, but they also can also lead to a distaste for life. So it also leads to recognizing that life is finite, that life does not last forever. And this is what the teacher did in pursuing pleasure. It came to the conclusion that nothing ultimately satisfied, that nothing in this world ultimately gives meaning to my life. So we consider the snapshot of the life of wisdom, that is this wisdom that is apart from God. The picture it shows us is one of a clock that continues to pass by over and over again. Yes, it's cyclical, it repeats, but it is moving forward. But it points us to the reality that life continues to move on in our lives in this world. It's just a moment. That there's nothing more to do but to make most of the time that you have left, whatever time that might be. But then this takes us to the second point, which is the snapshot of the Christian life. 
considered. Right, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, right, we still cannot escape the margins of time. And as valuable as wisdom might be, the wisdom of the world cannot escape the reality of death. And we can certainly agree to that. But the one thing that we cannot agree that the one thing that is missing from this, from this sort of experience, what's missing from this evaluation of life and the life of wisdom and madness and folly, the one thing that is missing is hope. And as Christians, that is what we do have. Yes, life is finite. Life is temporary. But for the Christian, there is the hope that life will continue after this life. The scriptures teach us that wisdom is not essentially about me or it's about you or anybody else, but wisdom is essentially about God. That wisdom starts with God. Wisdom is not just about doing good for your own sake or doing good for the sake of others, but wisdom is about living in right relationship with God. And when you have that kind of wisdom that comes from a relationship with God, you have the hope of eternal life. Proverbs 1.7 speaks of this relationship with knowledge or wisdom and God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. To know God and to live your life in reverence of God is the foundation of all knowledge and understanding and discernment and wisdom. And I've already named some, if you remember, some of the many benefits that come to living a life of wisdom. And that certainly applies to the Christian who lives a life of wisdom. And by the way, I mean, I don't think you have any other choice but to live wisely if you are a Christian and follower of Jesus Christ. This wisdom comes to us from having a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this wisdom is a gift. And this gift also comes with the gift of eternal life. And that is the hope of the Christian. The Apostle Paul, in speaking to his young protege, his young son in the faith, Timothy, encouraging him to give himself to the sacred scriptures, he tells he writes in 2 Timothy 3.15, speaking to Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the value of wisdom that comes from knowing God. A wisdom that comes from studying and dedicating our lives to the sacred scriptures and knowing God and having a right relationship with Him. That is that this wisdom is not only for this life and this life only, but this wisdom is also unto eternal life that it is also unto salvation. <clears throat> and Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him, <coughs> excuse me, with Christ that is, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. <clears throat> we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
For us who believe, yes, death comes for us also. But death is not something to run away from. Death is not something to try to escape from because death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. The teacher came to the stark realization that the wise and the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. The same death comes for both. So in that sense, secular, a secular kind of wisdom is profitable for this life and this life only. Some people don't care about being remembered. Some people do. But at the end of the day, all end up the same, erased by the hastening of time and passing generations. But our hope as followers of Christ is that while we too might be forgotten, we will not be forgotten by God. Revelations 3.5 tells us of this enduring remembrance. The one who conquers will be clothed dust in white garments, and I, says the Lord, will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Then in chapter 21, verse 27, Speaking about the heavenly city, it says that nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. At the end of our lives, what will matter most is whether or not our names are written in the book of life. I mean, after we pass, after you and I pass, how long will it take for us to be forgotten. But the hope of the Christian is that his, her name is remembered and it is written in the one place that matters and that is the book of God. So does God know you? When you transcend into eternity, will God know your name? Will God remember you? Recall the thief on the cross. Remember this? When Jesus was crucified with two criminals, one on his left, one on his right, and one of them railed at Jesus and the other defended Jesus. In Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Oh, <laughs> that gets me every time. Today you will be with me in paradise. We don't know much about this criminal, other than that he was a criminal. But we don't even know exactly what he did to warrant such a punishment. We don't know anything about his life. 
We don't even know his name. And here is Jesus, this man who, who attested to the innocence of Jesus, who pointed to his divinity that this one is going into his kingdom after he dies in this earth. In effect, Jesus is saying, when I come into my kingdom, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to remember you. Isn't this of great comfort to you? Doesn't this encourage you? Doesn't this compel you to continue to live your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is one of the great comforts of our lives that the God of the universe knows your name. Many people will spend their lives to be known by others. I wish this person knew my name. If this president or this king or this high official which has uttered my name from his lips, that would give me great joy and satisfaction. But here is the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, telling you that he will remember you and that he knows your name. That when you come before him, you don't have to have some special appointment. No angel is going to say to you, oh, I'm sorry, the king is busy. You're going to have to make an appointment. And my only free appointment is a month from now. No, but when you come before the throne of grace, Jesus is always saying, come. Because I know you. Because I know your name. That God knows your name is one of the greatest comforts to the Christian. That God knows your name is a healing balm to the lashes of your suffering, a word of comfort to your turmoil, a medicinal herb to your spiritual ills, a healing ointment to the burns of your affliction. That God knows your name is the poetry of his love towards you when you feel alone and abandoned. That God knows your name is a brilliant light to the dark night of your soul. Knowing these things then, let us live lives that are worthy of remembrance. The criminal on the cross was remembered by Jesus. He did not have the opportunity to live the rest of his life, to live out his faith. He didn't have that chance because he died in that moment. In a sense, everything that happened in his life prior to that was a waste. But that's not where you are at. You have time left. So live your life in a manner that is worthy of being remembered by the God of the universe and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right, but let's get the one thing straight, right? The thief on the cross affirmed the identity of Jesus Christ. He believed in him, and that is why he was saved. So we don't try to live lives worthy of remembrance because we're trying to earn something, but we do so because we have been saved. And because we have trusted in Christ. Romans 2.6 says, that God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Not only will God remember your name, but God will also remember your deeds. And that is why you want to live your life in a manner that is worthy of remembrance. Philippians 4.3, this is 
This is actually really good. Paul writes, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are written in the book of life. Where does the Apostle Paul get such confidence to say that these women have their names written in the book of life? Now, probably, perhaps, he shared the gospel with them personally and maybe firsthand witnessed their conversion and the trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. But according to the passage, I think the reason why he is so confident that these individuals have their names written in the book of life is because they worked with him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, they lived lives worthy of remembrance. They probably shared the gospel with the Apostle Paul. They probably showed hospitality to the Apostle Paul. They probably encouraged the Apostle Paul. They probably did something to help him as he continued to make his journey from town to town, from place to place, in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were fellow workers with him whose names are written in the book of life. Recall what Jesus says in the gospels when he's talking about the separation of the sheep and the goats. He invites the sheep and he says, Come, because you fed me, you gave me drink, you clothed me when I was naked, you visited me in prison, you helped me when I was sick. And they come before him and said, Lord, when did we ever, ever do that to you? When did we give you drink? When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you in prison? When did we ever come to you and help you when you were sick? And Jesus says, Surely as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. In other words, he's saying, that the deeds that you did for one another, for those of the family of God, I remember those deeds. And I remember them so vividly because when you were doing them to them, you were actually also doing them to me. In Hebrews chapter 10, speaking about the, the high priest that is Jesus Christ who has atoned for our sins and has cleansed us from all sins, it then teaches us to draw near to the Lord with boldness and with confidence. That every time we come before the Lord Jesus, that we are remembered by God. That He does not cast us away. That as long as you wear the robes of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in Christ, that God will always give you admittance into His heavenly throne because he will always remember you. But the one thing he does not remember, it says in Hebrews 10, is your sins. And because we have such confidence to draw near before the throne of grace, it tells us to do three things. It tells us first to let us draw near. Let us draw near before the Lord because our sins have been cleansed and forgiven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, speaking to the church, not talking to individual persons, but this is the commandment given to the church. Let the church, let God's people draw near to the throne of grace because their sins have been cleansed by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us draw near to the Lord. Let us hold fast to our confidence, meaning hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, it tells us to let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds not neglecting to meet together. That every time God's people gather together, 
and together collectively draw near to the throne of grace, holding fast to the confidence that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ and consider how to stir one another up that God invites them in because he knows each individual person of the collective body of Christ by name. He says, come, I remember you, I remember your deeds. And in this way, we draw near to Christ and come before the presence of Christ. For some of you, perhaps it's been a long time since you gathered with God's people. For some of you, perhaps who are watching, it's been quite a while for whatever reason that you've gathered with God's people. And in that way, you are not meeting this command to draw near to the Lord with God's people. You're not fulfilling the command to stir one another up in love and good works, holding fast to the gospel with God's people. And I would say that it's time. It's time the Lord is reminding you to come see his face with God's people. Draw near to him with the family and the household of God. And regardless of how long it's been, you need not be ashamed or afraid for as long as you come before the Lord in faith and repentance and confession of sins, you have the confidence that God will not cast you away. You have the confidence of God knowing who you are and still inviting you to come and draw near to him. As we think about our lives, if someone were to take your picture, a specific moment in time, what would that time, what would that moment be? If someone were to capture your life, what, if you're, what your life was about, what would that picture show? What would people remember about you? If you live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ and worthy of remembrance, what would that picture look like? Perhaps it might show you just parenting your children. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's writing a letter of encouragement. What would that picture look like? The scriptures are written for us in part as a reminder to us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But it also gives us a picture that I think captures what the, what the essence of the gospel is about. And when we picture Jesus Christ, we tend to picture him as crucified on a cross. But the scriptures also give us a better picture of Jesus Christ. And that picture is of the risen Christ. The Christ who is wearing a crown on his head. The Christ who still has the scars on his feet and on his hands. But is not a Christ who is alone. The scriptures, I think, also paint for us a vivid picture of the risen Christ with his family members, with the faces of the redeemed, with the faces and images of those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, those that Christ is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters. So is your face an image? Would your face an image be in that picture? 